Hello and welcome to episode 241 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. Ben, what's the latest? I uh, got a trampoline. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, <laughs> great. So you got 911 on speed dial and you're yeah. uh, ready for the... Fr- any any injuries yet? Uh, minor injuries? Uh, no, not yet. Okay, good. Knock on wood. I'm, I mean, I'm, uh, kids hoping. are injured at this moment in time, but not because of the trampoline. <laughs> so, what did they do? Uh, I actually... Oh, I know. So the youngest was playing football and caught it not quite the right way and <laughs> pushed his thumb back. But... <laughs> You know, he had his like little sprain thing on for a day and then he took it off and I was like, whoa, buddy, where's that thing that's keeping you from like using your thumb? He's like, oh, it's fine. Look, I can push it this far. Just yesterday, I could only push it this far. So kids are good at this kind of stuff. They um, they push the limits of their injuries, which I think leads to faster recovery. <laughs> okay, great. No, I'm serious. That's that's true, right? Like you know, us old people, we like get injured, and then you don't move your arm at all. You just favor and, it forever, and then yeah, yeah it, and you're it, like carrying it, it around off. like a little a little baby, and they're like, okay, now you can't use your arm anymore. Um, what do you want to do? So <laughs> today on the show, we have uh, a pearls versus turds about managing test day anxiety. We have a question about how to leverage a football career in a personal statement. We have a decision time. Someone's deciding uh, between University of Michigan with no money or Wayne State with all the money. Okay. We have an email from everyone's favorite law school dean, David Fegman at UC Hastings. (laughs) Oh, my um, gosh. Begging for emergency relief for Hastings students who are already impacted by coronavirus, um, basically by the shutdown and nobody hiring anybody. So uh, Fegman wrote an email to the entire Hastings community about uh, emergency relief for Hastings students and a hire Hastings campaign that he's proposing. Okay, interesting. In case you're wondering how Hastings grads are going to do in the upcoming uh, (laughs) disastrous recession. Uh, and then we're going to close with an interview from Doreen Benjamin. Um, she has an Instagram handle at Before You Take the LSAT. She's a 3L at Columbia and has all kinds of interesting information for uh, wannabe lawyers. The show will air on Monday, April 13th. The June LSAT registration deadline is coming up. That's uh, April 24th. Of course, by the time this airs, there will have been new announcements from LSAC. They're, as of today, what's today? The 7th? Yeah. Uh, The April 25th, Saturday, April 25th LSAT is still on, but they've been like tweeting about it. I don't know if you've seen this, Ben, but they've Mm. they've been commenting that they will comment. Um, I think they've moved it up to tomorrow, Wednesday, April 8th. They're commenting that they're going to comment? Yes, commenting that oh, they're going to provide some guidance. Just comment. <laughs> yeah, just cancel the fucking thing. But, I mean, yeah. who knows? Maybe they're going to shock the world and say, yeah, we're doing it online on April 25th. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that would be fantastic if they did. But uh, I think it's far more likely that they're going to say April's canceled. Maybe they're going to announce a May test. Maybe they're going to move it online. But let's not speculate. Oh, come on. I, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you right now. I'm putting my money on it. They're going to cancel <laughs> yeah. April, and they're going to go online in May or June because they need more time to figure out how to make that happen. 
If they do go online in April, I think it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> there you have it, folks. Prognosticator <laughs> Ben Olson. Yep, that's my prediction. Betting on the LSAC to fuck up a, a tech rollout is not a. That's not a long. That's, you're not going to get any good odds on that. I would say mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. A, probably an even money or even better proposition. Um, the uh, June LSAT right now is still scheduled for the eighth. So, um, and, and as far as we know, the deadline for that coming up is April 24th. So that's what we got for now, but next episode, we'll obviously have new, uh, data, new information from LSAC. Please email the show anytime. Um, you can call Ben out on his, uh, wrong predictions about the LSAC Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if he's wrong, or you can give him props if he's right. Um, that's help at thinkinglsat.com. That's also where you can send all hate mail or whatever. Yeah. Yep, all the hate mail, and it doesn't come to us, don't worry. It gets filtered through our (laughs) awesome staff, so (laughs) be nice. For some reason, that just made me think of Trump. Like He probably thinks like everybody loves him. He's like, oh, wow, the world's so great. It's like, I don't understand why the media is so mad. All the the feedback I get from my cronies is that everybody loves me on Fox and Friends. Anyways, sorry, that was a digression. Dude, do you ever watch John Oliver? You probably don't even have HBO, huh? Uh, you don't need HBO to watch John Oliver. Oh, really? Is he free? Yeah, uh, I think so on YouTube. Yeah, oh, okay. I see him every now and then. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just watched the most recent one last night, and he was talking about this OAN, this news network that's like yeah. way, way, way right of Fox. Mm. And Ooh. Trump now is like he hates Fox because they're not right enough, and so he's got these crazy OAN right. reporters not in the White right House enough. press room, and it, it's like. Yeah, it's just like, no, he's he's just, oh, you guys aren't going to be nice to me? Okay, I'll invite the OAN reporter in. And every time she, like, asks him some, stu- some fucking stupid softball question, you know, it's like she's just, yeah. all she is is just, like, pumping him up, essentially. And he's like, oh, that's such a nice, what a nice question. Yeah. <laughs> and he just continually calls on them. And it's absolutely not journalism in the slightest. But How will the American people applaud your efforts to beat the coronavirus uh, when this is all over. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Or, yeah, or like, what would you, you know, what would you say to people, like bringing up questions that actually no one has ever even said before? Like, yeah. what would you say to people who, who point out that there are far more abortions in the United States than there are deaths from coronavirus? <laughs> It's like, whoa, no one's thought of that ever. <laughs> it's like, no, it's complete non sequitur. It has nothing to do with like taking care of business against the coronavirus. But let's just bring this up because it's, you know, red meat for <laughs> the super right wingers. What would you say to people who are shocked about how well you're, yeah. you're uh, testing so many people in the United States more than any other country ever? <laughs> would you say you're the greatest president or the possibly tied for greatest president of all time with abraham lincoln (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah it's sad all right well yeah yeah don't send us hate mail send us nice things our staff is really nice um that's help (laughs) at thinkinghealth.com if you want to propose a pearls versus turd for the show or if you want to ask us a question about literally anything at all uh, that's help at thinkinglsat.com. If you want to send us a selfie of you studying or just goofing off when you do that, um, you might find your face plastered on our social media. If you haven't done so already, 
maybe even if you have, leave us a review on iTunes. Hit the five stars and write a few words about what the show means to you. It really helps other people find us. Um, we appreciate that a lot. Ready for this pearls versus turd? Yeah. Why don't you handle it? All righty. Current scoreboard, by the way, is seven pearls, 30 turds, and 15 ties. Um, Frank writes, This may not be relevant, but I thought I'd offer a suggestion for anyone that is struggling with getting test-ready in a silent, forward slash, quiet home environment, since we aren't able to be in a social setting right now or social settings right now, I've found a few ways to add in testing distractions. I know the guys have mentioned preparing as close to test day as possible. I've been testing at my kitchen table with YouTube videos pulled up on the living room TV. I normally use different videos of social settings like coffee shops. When I first started using it, the volume was really low, but I've been working up to louder volumes to help deal with any future exam distractions. Test center noise has been consistently mentioned to cause anxiety in LSAT prep groups. Thanks, Frank. For some reason, this reminded me of like using my TV as a fireplace on one occasion. Yeah. It's, I, I, yeah. Anyways, maybe we're getting more of that these days as people are forced to stay at home but it's still just a TV. Uh, I fear, Frank, that you have a good goal to try to recreate the testing environment, but you've substituted one inconsistency with another, in my mind. Silence, yeah, may not be a reasonable expectation for your test day experience if we ever go back to taking tests in person, but YouTube videos of people in coffee shops is also not a realistic expectation of what you're going to experience on test day. So I would favor the one that's closer and silence seems closer to that than coffee shops. So I'm not going to vote for this one. What are your thoughts? I think your test, yeah, your, your test day, nobody talks about it when their test day is quiet. People only talk about it when their test day is loud. Yeah. But the distractions are not going to be the hustle and bustle of a coffee shop. It's going to be construction outside or a marching band outside, or it's going to be a super annoying proctor with really loud shoes who keeps walking up and down the aisle and like standing too close behind you, looking over Mm -hmm. your shoulder and stuff. It's just, it's not going to be any of these kinds of white noise coffee shop videos that you're playing anyway. I, I almost worry as well that like Frank is practicing being distracted. Hmm. Which, like, the, the truth for everybody is, you guys aren't good enough at the content of the test. Let's be honest. All of your struggles with the LSAT are because you're not good enough at answering the questions. That's, that's real talk. So, I don't care what you do, as long as you just get better at the content of the test. Just get better at reading the questions, understanding them, and answering them correctly. Your problem is not you have a hard time dealing with distractions. Your problem is you're not good enough at reading the questions, understanding what it's asking and picking the right answer. So, you know, it's, it's almost like it makes, I think Frank's like heart's in the right place here, but I I just, I don't know. I, I feel like he's focusing on the wrong things. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's looking for like a gimmicky solution, you know, like a trick. 
Yeah. But it's not really a trick. It's just understand what you're doing on the questions. I would say uh, you want to recreate the test environment, take a proctor test with the demon with one of our live proctors. They're going to tell you when to start your section. Your section's going to end just like it would on the actual test day. And then you got to wait for everybody. Yeah. And the proctor's going to start you when you yeah. are ready to start. That's yeah. that's recreating a lot of the things that are going yep. to happen exactly as they're going to happen. Yep. And you have the nerves of, you know, you log on to the Zoom before the test starts and you see a proctor who's, you know, a stranger. At least the first time you meet them, they are. And you've got a room full of other people taking the test, a bunch of strangers. Mm-hmm. And then that's when like the anxiety starts to you know, kick in of like, oh shit, this is a big deal. I need to do my best here. This is my legal career on the line. All that type of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that would be a much better, I, I agree with you, you know, proctored tests in the demon. Cool. Thanks, Frank. Well, we got to decide. I don't think either of us are giving this a pearl. I would not suggest it in class, so it's a turd. Yeah, sorry, Frank. Well-intended, as a lot of these things are. I think they're all well-intended. I don't think anybody's trolling us. It's just Oh, I'm sure there's some that are not. (laughs) Ben, he's (laughs) paranoid. (laughs) It's a new world we live in, Nathan. (laughs) All right, the Chinese created that virus. (laughs) That was a joke, by the way. Um, How... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, this was so that brings me back to the John Oliver from yesterday. Yeah. Remember when Trump was super racist and he kept referring to it as the Chinese virus? Like yeah. for mm-hmm. real? Like he meant it? Yeah. That is a thousand percent racist to do that. And people were rightly calling him out on the fact that it is racist to call that the Chinese virus. And the OAN reporter goes, Wait, wait, hold up. I don't think that's racist. You're just saying where he's just saying that's where it originated from. It's fucking racist, Ben. Why is it racist? Because it's just—it's like—it's like saying like, "Oh, um, <coughs> I don't think it's racist. I disagree." You can be wrong. I, I'm not—I'm not, I'm not saying right. Trump is not racist. I think he—that's he what has, I'm saying. Trump is fucking racist, but I don't Trump, think that that is necessarily a, a racist claim. It could just be like describing where it originated. He did from. not. Oh my God, Ben. You have to what? think about the purpose. Why would Trump refer to that as the Chinese virus? Why would he do that? <laughs> I, I agree that that is probably his motivation to okay. cast blame. I'm just saying that, literally speaking, I wouldn't necessarily uh, let me say rephrase. that has to be. Okay. When Trump says it's the Chinese virus, sure, okay, fair enough. <laughs> then it is I'll racist that. that he's doing that because he's appealing to his racist supporters. Okay. I'm okay. trying to scare dumb Americans into thinking that this is an attack from a foreign country, and so we should rally behind our president who's defending us against the, quote, Chinese virus. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. shifting blame to somewhere else. He's not taking responsibility, and he's being fucking racist because he is a racist. Anyway, the OAN reporter goes, this was a legitimate, this was actually in the, I mean, unless John Oliver's lying to me, which I guess who knows these days, but uh, <laughs> the, the fucking OAN reporter goes, do you think it's racist when people refer to Chinese food? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Trying to help dig him out of his hole that he dug for himself unnecessarily mm-hmm. by referring mm-hmm. to the 
COVID as the Chinese virus. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, anyway, you ready to shift gears into this next uh, question? Yeah, happy to. Okay, this one's about uh, leveraging your football career in your personal statement. It says, hello, Ben and Nathan. Thank you both for your podcast. It provides the perfect balance of LSAT wisdom and comedic relief. I am hoping to get some golden personal statement and or admission council advice from you guys. I received a full-ride scholarship to play Division I college football at Western Illinois University, where I graduated from in December 2019. I was an English major and film minor and graduated as a marshal with a 3.81 GPA. Have you ever heard of a marshal? Mm-mm. Must be some adac- some academic accolade that they do at Western Illinois University. Never heard of that before. I also got the Departmental Scholar Award for Top English Student in my last semester and have made several great bonds with professors that I'm hoping will lead to solid letters of recommendation. I went through several big injuries during my time in college, including going permanently blind in my right eye as a sophomore and tearing my ACL a month before graduation. People shouldn't play football. You're not going to let your kids play football, are you, Ben? Or encourage them to play football? No, I'm not excited about football at all. Okay. Plus, it doesn't move, right? (laughs) It's like you're constantly waiting for the next play. You're like, okay, let's do this. Anyway, sorry. Football took a lot out of me, (laughs) including his sight in his right eye. Yeah. But it also gave a lot to me, both financially and personally. By far the hardest part of being a college football player, however, is the crazy year-round time demands. I know for a fact the overall commitment is unparalleled across all collegiate sports. And I only mention this because I believe it's relevant to the weight it could carry within a personal statement slash resume. I'll spare you all the details since I'm sure you get the point. All this is to say I'm almost positive I want to incorporate my experience as a D1 football player in my personal statement. However, I'm wondering exactly how I should go about doing this. Should I talk about my direct experience in the football program or my experience with successfully working around my football demands? Do either of you have any insight as to the benefits of being a D1 athlete may have, especially football, with law school admission councils? Thank you both for your time considering this lengthy email exclamation point. All the best, Joe. Oh, man. I have thoughts. You want to start or you want me to start? Well, my reaction to all these things are like, uh, I need to see it in writing and see what you talk about and then decide. I feel like he, he says, should I talk about my direct experience or my experience with successfully working around my football demands? I mean, probably both. Um I would like to see the facts, though. I don't want you telling me why you think you were successful or whatnot. But I don't know. For a lot of these questions about should I write about this, my answer is usually write about it. Let me see if it is written well. Because the topic is usually not the issue. It's what you say about the topic, I feel like. What facts you give me. The second you give me I was a, D, a D1 college football player, you already said 90% of what you need to say. Like, I don't, I actually, I don't want Joe to 
heavy handedly explain all this shit to me. Mm-hmm. Like, do you want, do you want Joe to say, I know for a fact the overall commitment is unparalleled across all collegiate sports? <laughs> Such confidence. No, of course not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what you don't say. Yeah. I mean, I think people get it and uh, people aren't stupid. And so the second you say, you know, maybe you mentioned the scholarship, I think just get like to help, you know, make it clear that like you were a hot shit football player. Like you're there on a scholarship playing D one college football. And it does. I mean, we understand that that has year round time commitments. Hmm. We know that uh, that's not, you know, like, so I don't want you to like lecture to the reader about that. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, it's it's kind of like once you say that, I just don't I, like. I don't want two pages of that. Yeah, what is there to say? Well, it's just like so. What what about it? Like, what does that have to do with you know why? What what? Are, so, who are you? Like, are you saying that I should admit everybody on the football team because they all did that too? So, yeah, you know, I. I don't know. I, I would like, what's that done for you or where, where are you going now? What are you doing now? He graduated in December of 2019. So that's still very recent. Mm-hmm. And then he probably can't have done a whole hell of a lot because of, I mean, it is a big part of his life. Yeah. So maybe it is the most impressive thing that he can write about, but do you have a specific story? I guess this yeah. does feel like it's um it's prone to just kind of glossing over the whole thing, my experience as a D1 football player. And so then you'll end up just saying a bunch of generalities. Like, I worked hard. We had to do a lot of games. I got hurt. I just want to know about maybe one or two particular things that you had to take a leadership role on on the football team or challenges you faced overcoming the, the blindness. Yeah. Jeez. I guess I'm curious about whether he was able to keep playing or if that was like the end of his, you know, playing career. Yeah. If you're blind in one eye, you lose three dimensional. <laughs> yeah. It would be, I mean, it probably depends on what position he played too. Like there's some positions where you probably don't need that as much as others, but yeah, I wonder yeah, it'd be interesting to hear, you know, your take on what football gave you and what it took away. I could see that being a nice essay. Yeah, or what is your opinion of football now? Right. Would you encourage someone else to play, yeah. given the potential costs? I mean, how did you go blind? I don't want this essay to be pro-football. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, the fact that you made it through this ordeal, that's great, and you overcame a lot, that's great. But if this, if it turns out to be like this rhapsodizing about how great football was to you, I don't, <laughs> especially in light of the blindness. I don't think that's going to really work theme wise. Hmm. I would say write it. Yeah. I mean, this is again, now Ben, you said it first, like it just depends how you do it. So write it a bunch of different ways. Cool. See which one's working. Next one. Thanks Joe. Yeah. Thanks Joe. I almost called him Joe Montana. Dear Ben and Nathan, my name is Muhammad, living in Michigan. Okay. Imagine two scenarios. One where you got accepted. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, this is interesting. Okay. One where you got accepted in ranked ninth University of Michigan with no to minimum grant. Uh, okay. This is like sentences leaving out words. Yeah. Yearly fees is around 60000 Common there would be helpful. So that's total uh, that's tuition and everything. University of Michigan. Yeah. 60 grand. Jesus fucking Christ. Okay. Okay. Or a full scholarship in mid-tier university ranked 91st Wayne State University. Muhammad, you have a lot of like typos and miscapitalization and missing words and stuff. Anyways, um, therefore, out of these two choices, which one would you go for? My wife works full-time in Michigan, therefore I don't want to move out from Michigan. Probably I'll get LSAT of 170, and my GPA is not that high. That's why not expecting a scholarship from you. Whoa. So we don't even know if this is a real scenario. Oh, this is pure stats-turbating. Oh, is, my gosh. This is, this is pure speculation. Get the offers first, Mohammed, and then we'll talk to you. If your choice really is pay full price at Michigan or or full ride at Wayne State, I would presume don't pay for law school. That's a huge fucking difference, though. Is there really no other yeah. law schools in between Michigan and Wayne State? Yeah, that's what's kind of challenging about this email. Is it's not even like a real scenario, right? Like. Are you going to end up with this situation or are you going to end up with a much different situation, which is easier to kind of debate? N no money at the University of Michigan and a full or partial scholarship to a school in the top 20. Um, in that case, I'd say go to the the top 20. And it, well, it depends again on how much they give you. I don't know. This this is even if these are the only two schools that you would possibly attend, I think you need to apply to eight other schools as well mm -hmm. in the surrounding area and lots of schools in between ninth and 91st in the country. So you can get yourself some competing offers. I understand that your wife works full time in Michigan and therefore you don't want to move out of Michigan, but do you really want to be a lawyer? If you really want to be a lawyer, I don't know that like just only considering two schools is really right. People make lots of sacrifices Mm -hmm. and you're closing opportunities before they even have a chance to <laughs> yeah there's ways that you could commute there's ways that you could go you know these days probably schools are going to do more and more online instruction part-time stuff that you could potentially do partially remotely i can't i can't imagine narrowing myself down to these two options well what if you got a full ride to like a top 20 school yeah uh, how much money are you going to save and then eventually earn because you got that full ride, maybe you can more than compensate for what your wife is earning right now. Maybe she can work. Is she working from home now with coronavirus? Can she move? Um, a friend of ours just moved to across the country. Uh, they were working from home and they moved and it's like nothing's different. So it doesn't matter where they are. Anyway, I would question your assumptions that you're limited to these two schools that this is the outcomes you would get um most probably i'll get a lsat of 170 gosh we gotta even start there like let's get your lsat scored <laughs> <laughs> let's let's see a lot of people think that i mean let's see it yeah and and even if you you know maybe it's a 175 
Like yeah. maybe Michigan ends up giving you a crazy scholarship. Why why sell yourself short with a one seventy? Yeah. I don't know. Most this, probably, actually, most probably not. We don't know anything about you, Muhammad. But <laughs> I would bet a lot of money that you don't 3%. get exactly a one seventy. Yeah. Right. Ninety seven percent chance you won't. No, no, so, no. Exactly a 170. There's a 99% chance you Oh, won't. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's uh, higher than that because most people aren't going to reach that high. Yeah. So, yeah, it's... <clears throat> Anyhow. Thanks for writing in. You say you love the podcast and great audio quality. Glad to hear that. Maybe this is great audio quality now. So. <laughs> we do try. That's mostly Adam, though, bailing us out by editing the show down to something that sounds decent. Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks, Mohammed. Appreciate it. Oh, sorry, I'm already looking ahead. This is Fagman. Fagmanism. <clears throat> I will Fagmanism? read this one since this is my guy. Um, he would never remember me, but I did take a class from him. I, at Hastings in mm. 2009 or 10. Um, the subject, emergency relief for students in need, semicolon, hire Hastings campaign. Here's the email. Ready? Hmm. Dear cherished alumni community, I write wow. today in a way that I have been reluctant to do in the past. <laughs> that is not true. Our students need your help. The challenges we face today call to mind my wife, Lisa's dad, Jack Snyder. Jack was 17 when World War II came to our shores. He soon volunteered to serve and became a pilot of a B-24 Liberator bomber operating in the European theater. He didn't talk much about his time in the war, except for one detail. He would never tire of telling stories and sharing pictures of his 10 flight crew members. But that's not one detail. <laughs> no, it's not. He didn't talk much about his time in the war, except he never stopped telling stories <laughs> <laughs> about his 10 flight crew members. Okay. Hmm. They developed an inseparable bond that lasted more than 50 years. They got together every year until, one by one, because of sickness or death, they could no longer travel to their reunions. Ben, hmm. where's he going with this? I have no idea. He's really like, he's really caught up with himself. In all these emails, there's a theme. He has a lot to say, and a lot of it comes back to him. He's, I think he's trying to pull off like a, because of the greatest generation, therefore donate to Hastings. Yeah, that's where I think he's going, too. That's a he's wild leap. Wow. Okay, that was the first paragraph. I learned many lessons from Jack, including admiration for what a team can accomplish that no individual could achieve alone, comma, respect for colleagues who excel at what they do and give everything they can to a shared goal, comma, and dash, not inconsequentially, dash, how to mix a killer martini. <laughs> Jack and his beloved wife of 55 years, Eleanor, died more than a decade ago. However, the lessons they bestowed and the memories we formed with them tend to get stronger, not weaker, with time. That's the second paragraph. It's also just false. 
The lessons they bestowed and the memories we formed with them tend to get stronger, not weaker with time. I'm sorry, that's just... <laughs> this is bold fucking lie. Yeah, <laughs> memories fade with yeah. time and change. Yeah. I am reminded of Jack Snyder for many reasons today. To be sure, the circumstances and immediate dangers that he and his colleagues faced bear little resemblance to the ones we now confront. But there are similarities, too. Like the greatest generation that stood together in the 1940s, we are called upon to rise above our individual concerns and to act with society's larger interests in mind. You know what, Ben? If he goes Mm. from here to, like, stay home, wash your hands, (laughs) you know, cancel everything for the greater good, Mm. I would be like, bravo. But he's not going to. He's going to say... Like the greatest generation, we need to stand together and donate money to Hastings. Mm. Are you fucking kidding me? I know that everyone is confronting uncertainty, anxiety, and profound challenges. The health and financial impacts of COVID-19 present clear dangers for everyone. I, of course, understand that every person's capacity to help is different. I also realize that there are countless worthwhile causes in need of assistance at this time. That's four paragraphs in. For those of you in a position to help, I have two asks, both reflecting urgent student needs. First, we have established an emergency fund to help students as best we can to meet dire financial needs resulting from the pandemic, including resources for food, shelter, or relocation. I ask that you consider giving to the student emergency fund or, alternatively, to the dean's discretionary account. Oh, that's not ominous. (laughs) Both are important. The former will be used to help students confronting the immediate financial consequences associated with COVID-19. The latter I will use at my discretion to both supplement the emergency fund as needed and to support longer-range relief efforts necessitated by the health and financial crises we are facing. These include bridge fellowships for students who have had offers withdrawn and summer grants for students who have had summer associate offers rescinded. So he's saying our students are struggling. Yeah. Donate money to us. Hmm. But you're the fucking problem in the first place. My second ask is more general and perhaps more consequential. As the economy wobbles under extraordinary pressure, Our students are losing employment opportunities. I beseech you and your firms or other employers to retain the UC Hastings students to whom you have already made offers or look to hire UC Hastings students, even if only for short-term work. Every little bit helps. If you are able to create summer experiences for our students of any length, please notify our career development office, and there's an email address, With a description of the work, materials needed for vetting candidates, and your hiring timeline, we'll post this information on Hastings Careers Online, where our students go to learn about employment opportunities. Our career development team is also available to help you think through different ways you might engage UC Hastings students in your work. We confront profoundly uncertain circumstances in the weeks and months ahead, Although we need to isolate ourselves physically, none of us is alone. Family, friends, and our respective communities are there, 
UC Hastings is there. We will emerge from this tunnel and will be stronger and prouder for the strength, fortitude, and charity that we brought to these times. <laughs> Thank you for being part of the greater UC Hastings family, a community that makes me proud every day. I wish you and yours well. Please stay safe and healthy. Warm regards. David L. Fegman, Chancellor and Dean, UC Hastings Law. Hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah, for some reason I feel like he used to close with warm regards and it was capitalized. <laughs> I know, that's a very unimportant thing. But <laughs> he Well, he did capitalize case. every word in his salutation. Hmm. Interesting. He capitalized Dear Cherished Alumni Community. But then he did hmm. not capitalize warm regards. Yeah, which I'm I'm glad about. You know, uh, sorry, I'm digressing to the obviously unimportant. But I mean, hmm, I give him credit for asking for help. Uh, he's that's his job, right? He's trying to help his students. Um, it's I would be curious to see who responds and offers help, but any help that he gets from this email makes it uh, worthwhile for his goals. But he sure is, like, entertaining. I mean, gosh, he really likes to talk. I wish this were a lot shorter. I really wish, actually, it would just focus on this second request. Like, if you have jobs, hire our people. We'll get you. We'll connect you. Here's how. But maybe to make this pitch, he's got to say all this stuff about the greatest generation. I don't know. Maybe these things work. I'm curious. I mean, he sends them out to thousands of people. Uh, he should do A-B testing, actually. He should do this <laughs> this long email, right? And then have like us write one and then see what kind of response rate they get. Maybe yeah. this, this is the, the magic of Fagman. Fagmanism. I don't know. I don't know. I <clears throat> Maybe he should sell the 14-story building he just built and use that to support his struggling <laughs> students and alumni. That would require self-sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, we know we're not doing that. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the faculty and administration is still making hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year. And they're, while begging for people to donate money for food and shelter for their students. I don't, wow. I mean, that's like, really? Wow. The Dean's discretionary account too. I guess that's if you're really in the orbit of Dean Fegman's, you know, magic, you're going to just be like, yeah, give it to that one. Let him decide. He knows He's better. The man. Yeah, I don't want to put it yeah. into the student emergency fund. No, I'll put it in the Dean's discretionary account because then the Dean, if he wants to, he can supplement it at his discretion to supplement the emergency fund. Hmm. So how much are you going to contribute? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Nope. My days of contributing to UC Hastings ended, um, well, uh, about six years after I graduated when I finally managed to get my loans repaid. Hmm. Um, which I was one of the lucky ones. Most of the people that I went to law school with are still paying for those loans and will always be paying for those loans, frankly. Yeah. What do you think about the claim that uh, Hastings is going to emerge from this tunnel stronger? And prouder? 
Yeah, that's where I just feel like it's just like it's kind of Trumpian in this sense. It's like, oh, this is going to be so great. Everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. You know, we're doing such a great job. This is the best job that's ever been done by any country ever. You know, we're going to emerge from this tunnel and we'll be stronger and prouder for the strength, fortitude, and charity that we brought to these <laughs> times. Like, you're just, I don't know, it's just people, I guess, they like how they feel when they hear these things, but they're, they're not based in any uh, evidence. Hastings' ranking is going to continue to fall. That's my wild speculation. I mean, you're really going to convince people to come to downtown San Francisco, actually Tenderloin, San Francisco, one of the most population dense places in, it probably is the most dense population in the state of California. Hmm. And it's got to be up there in the country, downtown San Francisco. And it's got a crazy homeless problem. And it's (laughs) with, I mean, there's no way people are setting foot on that campus for the foreseeable future. Hmm. And the ranking was already of the school was already falling. Now you're, I mean, he's admitting in this email that the students and graduates are struggling. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to happen way, way, way worse in the next months slash years. Yeah, I mean, we saw what happened after the financial crisis in two thousand eight. People who graduated a couple years later were just like, no chance. And the, this is going to be deeper and longer and worse. So, I don't know. It just it strikes me as complete fiction. Could be. I mean, I guess we'll all see. It's a, it is a learning opportunity. So, maybe he should have rewritten this. We will emerge from this tunnel. <laughs> Period. <weaker. laughs> yeah. Weaker. Oh, yeah. We will emerge from this tunnel. Maybe. We have no idea what will be on the other side of it. No, yeah. I think prouder is a safe bet, though. Well, he'll be prouder. That's what I'm saying. Every day he's getting prouder. Yeah, Yeah. just like his memories of Jack Snyder and his wife grow stronger, not weaker, over time. Yeah. He he definitely grows prouder over time. (laughs) (laughs) That's just one skill, is continually being prouder and prouder. I want to know how he comes up with these emails. Is he, like, getting into bed... He's talking to his wife, and he's like, oh, yeah, I got to get some more money. Gotta he's got to be money. fishing for money from, like, greatest generation people, right? Like, he's got mm-hmm. 80-year-old alums on this list who own law firms, and yeah. that's who he's writing it for. Yeah. So he's going to kiss their ass with some, you know, even though it doesn't add up at all, greatest generation nonsense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you want to donate money right now to help, like, with coronavirus... You don't give your money to a law school. <laughs> Come on. No, wait, hold How on. How fucking they patronizing have, they have is that? They a program for food, shelter, or relocation. <laughs> or the Dean's Discretionary Fund for long-term blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, it's the Dean's Discretionary Account. He's got, the, he's got that capitalized. Yeah, he's got a bunch of these accounts cop- capitalized, and the career development office is capitalized, but he doesn't have greatest generation capitalized, which oh, I thought was interesting. That's an insult. Oh no! Yeah, the group he's trying he to reach out to, and that's normally capitalized. Oof, boy, 
He's insulted the entire greatest generation. Wow. All right. Should we wrap it up there? Yes. Okay. Well, let's go get our uh, interviewee. Mm-hmm. This is Doreen Benjamin. She is the founder of uh, At Before You Take the LSAT. She's a 3L at Columbia. And she's got advice for people who are thinking about going to law school. Let's go get her. So today on the show, we have Doreen Benjamin. You went to UCLA as an undergrad. You're now at Columbia Law, and you're going to graduate this May, presumably, right? Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, probably won't have a ceremony, I'm guessing. No, unfortunately. Virtual. Okay. <laughs> a virtual one. Oh, is that what they're talking about? That's interesting. Yeah. I saw something, I think, on your Instagram where you were on Forbes or... Forbes chose you as one of the 30 under 30. Is that is that right? Or is that like a, so, a, a scoop? Or? <laughs> so um, what happened was they had the 30 under 30 event in Boston. And I went as like a um, Forbes scholar. Um, it was more for like education than anything. And so it, it was just like an opportunity to do a photo there. And it looks very real because it's from Forbes. But no, I haven't. I haven't made on, onto the cover just yet. Okay, good. <laughs> just curious. It looks cool. Um, I saw a picture of you with Gary V. Is yes, that right? Yes. Too, this... Are you guys familiar with him? You guys also like him? Uh, I don't know. I don't have an opinion of him. I am familiar with him. Um, okay, so you went to a, an event with him, I guess. Yeah, he did one at Wine Library um, in New Jersey, which is his father's store. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And you play the piano, apparently, and you run um, before you take the LSAT, which is like a resource for people, right? It's on YouTube, Instagram, uh, Twitter. You have a podcast. Um, I noticed that your Instagram subtitle is pre-law, law school, career insights you won't find anywhere else. <laughs> yes. I try to provide, basically, so the the whole thing with Before You Take the LSAT is um, I think a lot of times people go into law school not knowing exactly what to expect. And I know you guys talk a lot about, um, you know, don't pay for law school and things like that. But most people do end up paying for law school, whether or not that's the right thing, like that's a different conversation. But a lot of people do end up paying for law school. But even if you don't, like you're investing three years and I just feel like there's so much that people don't know before they start law school. And and I'm basically creating what I wish existed, which is like a resource that has more insight into what law school looks like, what you can do after law school. There's just so much information that I feel like is not out there or is yeah. not easily accessible at least. Okay, great. Yeah. Now through, before you take the LSAT, you've interviewed lawyers from apple nike facebook right yes that's exciting and informative (laughs) yeah it was the it was the gcs of those companies the xgc of um apple and then nike facebook and hopefully doing one with the gc of mastercard next week okay so just for those who are curious gc is general counsel right yeah the Um, top lawyer yeah okay great well 
bef- we told uh, our listeners on, I think, Facebook, maybe Instagram, I'm not sure. Thank you, Annalisa. But um, she reached out to our listeners and said, hey, what questions do you have for uh, Doreen? And here are some of the ones that we got. I think we've kind of touched on this first one a little bit. Why did you create before you take the LSAT? And yeah, do you want to add anything to that? I mean, yeah, I think it was mainly what I had said. I think also another thing is like, after I graduated undergrad, like I wasn't sure what I wanted to do afterwards. And I think ever since then, I had wanted to create a resource that helps people have more insight into their career path. And so once I started law school, I focused it just on law, but it's always been something I've been interested in. I think, I just think that there's not enough clarity on the day to day as opposed to like most people know the salary or how long it takes to get there, like just the numbers, you know, like the quantitative, but the qualitative of what qualities would make me good at this job, like those types of things I think are much more difficult to find. And I, and I find that is, you know, very important. <laughs> what would you have done differently, Doreen, if, you, if this resource had existed when you were deciding? I think one of like, for example, one thing like I like to talk about is before you start law school, you should have a pretty clear idea of what you want to do exactly because it's not I I might feel like three years is a long time but in a lot of law schools you kind of have to know after your first year um and even then like your first year you're just mostly studying so it's not like you have so much opportunity to um explore I think what I would have done differently is done a lot more informational interviews before I started law school so I could know I could have more clarity on the different paths I think that's one of the biggest things I would have done. And then, like, for example, as a second and third year, I realized how much affinity groups and becoming friends with second year students or third year students could be so helpful. And as a 1L, um, I've used this analogy and I hope it doesn't offend anyone, but I'll relate it just to myself. I feel like being a 1L is like being a headless chicken. You're just kind of like walking around trying to figure out what to do. And it's crazy to me looking back, knowing that 2Ls and 3Ls have so much knowledge. They're literally in the same school as you walking around in the halls. And I just didn't know how valuable. It's not that I didn't have 2L and 3L friends, but I just didn't realize, you know, just spending more time with them, asking them questions. And I know that they would have been happy to help. I could have had a much better idea of what to expect if I had done that. Especially, I'm I'm also first generation, so... I think that just adds to it. But even if you're not, I know a lot of my classmates, like a lot of them didn't exactly know what to expect. And law school is just so different from undergrad. That kind of tends to happen, I feel like. Got it. Hmm. Wow, these questions are kind of leading into what uh, you've already talked about. But the next one was, can you talk about your law school experience? What should fall 2021 L's expect, especially those who are first-generation law students? Wow. It's okay. okay. I think I think I, I think there's more to say. So what I would say about my law school experience, um, I think the most valuable thing for me, and I think most people probably wouldn't agree with me, but this is just I guess my perspective, is it's the a lot of times it's the people you meet and the opportunities you could take advantage of. For me, part of that has been the interviews that I've done. Like I just think, you know, I, I, it provided that platform to be able to do those types of interviews, but. Also, in terms of like my classmates, the school does a really, really good job of admitting people from all types of backgrounds. So, you know, we had someone who was like a monk. We've had people who've worked in law. We've had it's it's just it's such a wide range of experiences. And 
getting to know my classmates has been one of my favorite parts of law school, just because everyone's really motivated and driven. And I feel like there's a lot to learn from each other, which is kind of, I guess, the point partially of the Socratic method. But yeah, that's been that's been one of my favorite parts of my law school experience. I think there's been more generally about my law school experience. I think it's a lot of figuring things out as you go, um, which can be difficult. And I think to that extent, like a lot of times it is helpful to join different groups um, and create like bonds there and learn. Like a lot of times um, student groups will have resources like outlines or mentorship events, things like that. In terms of what fall 2021 else should expect, I think, you know, that's actually, I think there could be a lot said about that with what's going on with the coronavirus. Um, there's a chance, who knows, but there's a chance classes will still be virtual at that point. And I'm doing virtual classes now. It's very different. Um, and I'm happy to talk about it if you guys would like, but it's very different. And but yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that fall 2021 L's would probably want to think about is just what the differences might be as a 1L starting this year. Yeah, I actually do want to hear a little bit about what Columbia Law School has done to go online and, and what that experience is like, because I wouldn't be surprised that some schools don't uh, continue to do that. Especially since, I mean, just last night I was listening to Dr. Fauci and, you know, I don't know whether what he says is accurate, but someone asked, you know, when will things get back to normal? And he said that he didn't expect an, anything to ever get back to normal or the way things were. Things are going to be different from now on, but they will get back to some degree of normality. Uh, but I can see a lot of things changing. I mean, everybody now is like, wait a sec, I can do uh, <laughs> work from home? Like, maybe I should just continue to do that. And, and some people hate it, probably, but some people thinking, like, why live in this expensive town if I can go somewhere else and get the same kind of work done? So, um, what you know, what are law schools learning from this? And then what are how many of them are saying, oh, we can save money if we do some of this online, some of this in person? I don't know. What are you doing right now and how is it different? Yeah, so basically it was kind of sudden. Um, they decided the week before, not that that's when they decided, when we started doing online classes the week before spring break. Um, they gave us like, I think, a day or two off so that the, so that the professors could figure it out. <laughs> and then they just, we went totally virtual. And you know, like a lot of older, like a lot of our professors tend to be a little bit older and it might be more difficult to make that transition. But for the most part, I found that they were able to navigate it pretty well. It does feel like a difference, unfortunately, I guess, in quality. I was doing a clinic this semester. I am doing a clinic this semester, which is seven units, which is a pretty significant portion of my like unit, like overall units. And it was the it's the mediation clinic and we were going to court and mediating and so it's not that we're not mediating anymore at all but it's a lot harder to come across like virtual mediations um so it's kind of unfortunate i think that there are like i think for example the with the mediation example if if the school had been more prepared if the world or New York had been more prepared, maybe they could take advantage and have more opportunities just because the courts are prepared for it and they can, you know, have a system to do more mediations. But 
it's just kind of tough because everything was kind of thrown on everybody all at once. And then the virtual classes, I think it's it might seem like really insignificant, but one portion that I do like is that you can see everybody's faces and that's been kind of nice to like have the, it feels more like we're interacting with each other in that sense. Cause sometimes the classrooms um, you're kind of just facing the professor and it's a little bit more difficult to have that kind of, I guess, community. But overall it it's, I think most people are not necessarily happy, but, but like, what are you going to do? I think the schools didn't have any other choice, but I, I do see there, there is possibility for it to be a good thing. I think just right now it's a little difficult because everybody's learning. Great. The next one, the next question says, given you've done an externship at MasterCard, wow, someone knows some details about you. Uh, do you think law school is preparing you to practice? If not, why? I think um, especially opportunities like externships and clinics tend to do a great job of preparing you to practice. The class is a little bit more difficult in terms of like it being able to prepare you, but um one thing that I've really enjoyed um, at Columbia is just that we we have a lot of seminar courses. And so, um, for example, we had um, lawyers from um, Palantir and Betterment, which are both New York-based. Um, they, they came in and taught a class on tech and VC law. And that was really cool because there are people who are practicing who, like, they would actually bring us into their office and like we did a negotiation at their actual office locations. So I find that stuff like the externship or experiences like the externship or clinic or some of the smaller seminar classes really do help prepare to practice maybe more experiences like the externship and clinic more than anything, but some of the other experiences with seminar courses kind of give you more insight into what it would look like to be a lawyer and what the expectations are and what the environment even could look like. And so I think all of those things are helpful and, and, it, and it's learning from someone who's, who's in it. So, um, and maybe like has a different perspective, you know, a lot of them have done different experiences. So not just the current role that they have. And that's been helpful as well to learn about the different experiences that you can have. Cause I think a lot of times as law students, we tend to focus on just immediately out of law school, but there's so much to think about as you go along. Um, how much did Columbia help you get that externship? How much did you have to do on your own to make that happen? So they started, so that was actually a new program that they had that they started the semester I did it, which was last semester. And basically it's um, an in-house counsel externship. And they, I think actually what had happened was whatever. Anyways, I don't want to get into the boring details, but basically they, they make the connections with um, the companies and then you apply for the different companies and you get interviews. And then from there they can choose to take you or not, but it is like, there is a significant portion of them helping in terms of like even having those options because before it wasn't really an option to, you know, extern in-house, at least I haven't heard about it. It's, you know, usually something that you do more down the line. So they definitely set it up and do everything that they can to help you. And then you just interview and apply. The next question on the list says you seem to be very involved at Columbia. Um, How do you manage your time between student involvement and studying for classes? I think it's really hard. I 
I do tend to like to be involved. I think that there's a lot to do at Columbia, but I guess I just think about that when I'm choosing my classes and because a lot of the classes I take, I find to be really interesting. It makes it a little bit easier to be like engaged and split my time between the two because I want to be learning what I'm learning, but it's definitely not easy. It's, it's very hard to balance the the different things but there I guess some of it does there is some overlap like some of the things we learn in the class are relevant to the things the types of events that I might have so I even like am in touch with my professor sometimes about the things that I'm doing and you know they've been interested in it it as well some of the like interviews and stuff especially so I guess it helps that there's some overlap from the Facebook group, uh, Don asks, how important are your grades during your first year for your chances in whatever path with law you choose? Clerkships, big law, small boutique, whatever. How important were those 1L grades for you? I think they tend to be very important, especially if you want to do something like big law. Um, the way, I mean, I, I think it can range a little bit between law schools, but at least for Columbia, after your first year, you, most people are doing on-campus interviews in the summer, which actually, just to throw it out there, this year they changed that to January because of the whole coronavirus situation, so that should be interesting. But So usually after your 1L year, you do the on-campus interview, and your grades matter, and for people who want to clerk, your 2L and 3L grades matter as well. But yeah, I think I think it is really important. People say that your 1L grades are the most important, and I think that that's true. It becomes less important as you go along unless you want to do something like clerk after law school. Did you do OCI? I did, yeah. How, how'd that go? It's an interesting experience. They have us in hotel rooms in Midtown, and it's almost like 15, 20-minute interviews with up to 30, most people don't do 30, but up to 30 different um, firms. And I think most of the time, if you ha- as long as you have like the baseline grades, they're just looking to make sure that you're someone they're willing to work with and talk to. And <laughs> it can be, it can be a, a very, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking but also just weird because you're in hotel rooms (laughs) um talking about uh yourself and your reasons why you want to go to law school and um why you're interested in that specific firm so yeah what would you say were the most common questions or maybe even some of the surprising questions you got the more common ones, it's actually interesting. I think people might expect some of it to be about law, but it's mostly not. It's mostly more personal questions. So they'll ask you, why law school? Why Columbia? Why do you want to work in this specific market? So like if you're, in a new, if you're at a New York school and you want to work in any other market, they'll typically ask you about geography questions of why you want to work in that other area. They'll ask why that law firm, why that practice area. Almost like every interview tends to ask these types of questions. The more rare things, actually, interestingly enough, are like, what was your favorite class? (laughs) And I've heard a few people where they've been asked about uh, like more legal related questions that were like specifics of like torts or something like that. And that's just very uncommon. Well, it sounds to me like when you say personal, it sounds... Like they're specifically concerned about your personal career. Yes. 
aspirations, right? Because they want to make sure that they're hiring someone who's going to come to them and be worth the investment to come back. Whereas、uh, stuff about law, maybe they're not curious because they already saw your grades and. Most law students don't understand the law anyway, right? You're a one L. You don't know shit. They can't、yeah. ask you legal questions. <laughs> That's、yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, maybe personal is not the right word, but what I meant is just that it's not about law. Yeah. Directly. Yeah. It's it sounds very employer focused. Are you gonna stick with us? Do you are you likely to continue on with us if we like you? Yeah,、right. I think I think that is what they're doing. It's just like. They expect that you'll bring a certain level of intelligence, and then beyond that, the questions really are: Would I want to work with you? Like, how are you, what it would what would it be like to be, you know, <laughs> working together? I think that's the main question usually that they're really trying to get at. And 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 like you said, like, are you going to stay here? Because I guess that's another huge concern for big law firms: is like, are you do you plan to、um, be with us and stay with us and not just leave right away? Yeah. Don asked a follow-up about grades.、Um, just asking, you know, if it's levels of importance for each path. Basically, he says, basically, if I fuck up and get bad to mediocre grades during my first year compared to the rest of the time, is there a chance to rebound during my second and third year? I think it could be difficult because it depends what kind of job you want to do. But if you wanted to do big law, for example, they're mostly just looking at your one L grades, and it's a little bit. More difficult to get a big law job after after one L、um, after that summer after one L. So、uh, it might be difficult, but it's possible. And then in terms of clerking and stuff, I don't know honestly. Actually, like I don't want to say that I know, but I, I I imagine like they're looking more at grades, not just the one L. So one L grades. So I think maybe there's more of a chance, but I don't want to speak to it because I I'm not entirely sure. But I, I think. Generally, there's a reason、um, why people emphasize the first year grades. It's because for most jobs, that is the most important. On that note, what would you recommend people do before going to law school to not fuck up their first semester grades? Their first semester in particular, right? Because OCI is going to be looking at those, not not your second semester. OCI is usually late enough in the summer that they look at both.、Oh, okay. All right. I think it's a really important question, and probably one most law students are. I've at least seen are advised like not to think about, and I think that that's weird. It was also the advice that I got, but I think、um, there are a lot of great resources out there to learn a little bit more how law school works and how like law school exams work specifically. And a lot of people don't learn about that until a little bit later on. One thing I used and really appreciate, and I know a lot of my classmates appreciate, is a website called Quimby. It's Q U I M B E E, and they are incredible. They basically provide briefs, I guess. They that tell you what, not just the holding, but what is the rule as it as it can apply to other situations. And usually for law school exams, that's what you need to know is what is the rule that could apply to other situations. I mean, I can explain a little bit about what an exam looks like if that's helpful, or I can just no. Go ahead. I'm sure a lot of a lot of our listeners have no idea. Go ahead. Okay, cool. So basically, a law school exam will be a set of facts, and your job is to look at that set of facts and think about the rules that apply to that to those set of facts, and then you kind of、uh, make an argument for why it might go one way or another. So 
one of the most famous books that people read before they start law school is um, Getting to Maybe. And mm -hmm. uh, I actually haven't read that book, but the idea is like, on even on your law school exams, you're kind of, it's not a 100% yes or 100% no. It's kind of like you're getting closer to one side or the other. And a lot of law school exams are created in a way where you're not going to hit all of the issues. They're called issue spotters. And you're not going to hit all of the issues that come up. There just isn't usually enough time. But your goal is to cover as many issues as you can, identify as many issues as you can. And there's just like different ways to approach it. But I think one of the biggest issues and what I was kind of getting at when I was talking about the whole headless chicken thing is there's such a huge difference between what's expected of you in your classroom versus what's expected like daily when you show up for class versus what's expected of you when you take your exam. So when you're in the class, like the professor will ask you the smallest of details. Like it might seem as insignificant as like, what was this person wearing? Whereas when you go into the exam, it's much broader than that. And you kind of just want to have a good understanding of the case more generally and how it might apply to what their um, what issues are presented to you. So I just, you know, I think a lot of times people are so focused on doing well in class and not being embarrassed in front of their classmates and knowing every last detail of the case. And ultimately, that's not how you know not it's not that's not how you end up necessarily doing well on the exam the more useful thing to do is, in my opinion at least is to take practice exams uh, pretty early on I think a lot of people don't do it at all or if they do it they might do like a week or two out but just being more familiar with what a law school exam looks like I think really really helps um, be, just because it's so different than what people are used to in undergrad none of your grade depends on your in-class performance, right, at Columbia? Um, the the what they'll say is that it can, it, they they can take it into consideration, but like, no, most of your grade is based on on the one exam that you end up taking. Even I, classes that give the grade boost, you can get that grade boost by just going to office hours or emailing the professor or whatever. I mean, it's it's an ass kissing boost, which doesn't necessarily have to do with you know your in-class performance. No, I mean, I don't think they hold it against you. As long as they know that you've done the reading, I don't think they hold it against you. So yeah, I think, and 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 they're not, it's not really a transparent process in terms of how it affects your grades. So it's kind of just, as far as I've seen at least. So it's, it is mostly just about your grade, but that does change after 1L, but you know, most of your grades matter in 1L. Like if you, mm -hmm. if you take seminars and stuff, then it's not just one exam. It could be a paper, it could be assignments throughout, so it can range. Yeah, it's just interesting. People spend, you got to think about how you spend your time, right? You spend your time preparing for class versus spending your time taking practice tests, which um, yeah, if you have to choose between the two, practice tests are what's going to affect your actual grade. I mean, even even where the ass-kissing uh, factor comes into play, which is really does the teacher, you know, have a generally positive impression of you based on hours and hours of class time, how much of that is going to affect your grade? It's, it's not, it's not a huge portion. It's um, not, no. Like, so yeah, good to know. Um, that book I read getting to maybe how to excel on law school exams when I was a 2L. And I remember thinking kind of like what you're saying, like, Oh, okay. That's what you're looking for. Glad to find out. Um, I mean, it really felt to me like I was taking an exam and then getting at the end of the semester, 
getting a grade and being told, okay, this is how you did, and thinking, okay, now I know、uh, what I did or didn't know, and the class is over. <laughs> so <laughs> move on to the next one. There's also, just to throw it out there, but there's also IRAC, which is issue, rule, application, and conclusion. And that's usually how we're taught to like, organize our exams. So that might be something also that might. I know law students tend to be, and people who want to go to law school tend to be type A. So, like, if I had to give advice to myself, I'd probably say get familiar with like Quimby, know what a law school exam, know, know what to expect in a law school exam, maybe be familiar with something like IRAC, which is literally just I R A C. Like, those types of things I didn't know about, and I think it would have been helpful to know. Yeah.、Uh, the next question is from Jonathan. He says, I'd be curious to know what other law schools you considered and why you ultimately chose Columbia! Exclamation point. Um, thanks, Jonathan. Columbia has a stereotype of being a big law factory. How true is this? So I, I thought this said, how, how is this true? How true is this? Okay. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. So、um, uh, I had an interesting, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I thought that I was going to stay in LA. I'm from Los Angeles. So I thought I was going to stay in LA. And I actually just ended up applying to Columbia based on a comment someone had made to me about, like, you have a shot there. And I was like, okay, whatever, I'll just put in an application. But then before I heard back from schools and after I had applied, I realized that I really wanted that opportunity to move and live somewhere else. And so once I heard back from schools, it was just like mainly LA and like very few other schools. Um, outside of LA and Columbia and being in New York were both appealing to me, both because Columbia was high ranked, which I don't think necessarily is the best way to pick a school, but、um, part of it was the rank, and the other part of it was living in a city like New York and knowing that that's,、um, there are a lot of opportunities in terms of law living in New York, which, you know, that I didn't, I, I didn't even realize the extent of that. Before I started law school, but once I was there, like externing at MasterCard, it, I was at the headquarters for MasterCard, and there's no way, I mean, it would have been really hard to do it if I wasn't in the city. And like a lot of the seminar courses that we took, I, I had a very heavy leaning towards like classes with GCs. I, I just, I guess I just have an interest between the intersection of law and business. And so a lot of them worked out of New York. And so Even more than I realized at the time, I think a lot of it was about New York being a legal center. So that was a huge reason why I chose it. Part of it was not wanting to be in LA、um, and wanting to move, and part of it was ranking. And then, in terms of Columbia having a stereotype of being a big law factory, I think that, that there is truth to the fact that a lot of Columbia students do go into big law. I think the percentage is like 80%, but You know, there, there are also people who go into public interest, but I think it's less than the number of people who come in thinking that they're going to go into public interest. A lot of times they end up switching over to big law. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a path, it's a great path. So I guess a lot of people are drawn to it. I guess one last question I have relating to you've touched on this a little bit, but if someone's trying to decide whether to go to law school, Do you have any specific advice or question that you would tell them to think over as they're trying to make that decision? 
Yeah, it's it's such an important question <laughs> of like how how do you decide whether or not you want to go to law school? I, I think I would go back kind of to what I had said, but I think I would maybe even make it broader. Like don't so if you're thinking about going to law school and you're not sure, I think I would start with talking about talking to people who are in the field doing things that you think you'd want to do to see if it's actually like when they describe their job, is it actually does it actually sound like something you'd want to do and some like you would be happy to be in that person's position when you talk to them? Like, are you like, wow, that'd be, this would be so cool. I'd love to do this. It's a little bit harder in the legal profession, but if you're able to shadow or at least like be in their office setting to see what their office setting is like, obviously not right now during Corona, but, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I think like the coronavirus actually to some extent has freed up people's schedules. So I think right now would be a great time to reach out to people to learn about their careers. Um, people are usually willing to give back in that way. But, and beyond that, in terms of the, the law school aspect of like choosing the specific law school, I think I didn't realize how accessible law students can be. Like, I think it's easier to reach law students than what people might think. So reaching out to either affinity groups or just generally um, student groups and asking to be connected to someone, I think is a great way to learn more about the law school, especially during a time like this where you can't visit. But I would say both of those things. The second one more for, for choosing your law school and the first one more just for realizing whether or not you want to go to law school. Okay. And practically speaking, finding these people, especially the attorneys for the first question, a lot of this is just going onto LinkedIn, right? And finding people maybe at a company that they could see themselves practicing at and saying, Hey, I know you do X. I'd be interested to learn more. Can yeah. I, I would, I would try to find, to about it. yeah, I would try to find some kind of connection. Like if you went to the same undergrad maybe like if you're an undergrad or you you already graduated that may be one way but mm -hmm. you need an in <laughs> <laughs> or if you have like friends of friends you can also start there um but yeah i think at the end of the day if you don't know somebody cold emailing might be the way to go and then you can you can also build relationships that way that might last beyond just pre-law the pre-law stage and try to get a good picture on your Instagram, or I'm sorry, on your uh, LinkedIn profile, right? Because like, um, for better or worse, people are going to make a split second decision whether to respond based on how put together you are in your LinkedIn photo, right? If you, if it looks like it was cropped from a, a party, it's probably not going <laughs> to help you. So, okay, Nathan, any other thoughts, questions? No, uh, Doreen, is there anything we forgot to ask you or anything you, you want to shout out? No, I think it's really cool that you guys have a podcast, though, that and like are constantly talking about this stuff, because that's also something that would have been great to have um, before I started law school. I hadn't I hadn't heard about thinking LSAT at the time. I know you guys have grown a lot since then, but it, it just there's just so much to learn. And I just wish that there were more resources. But I guess I would just say if thinking about who's listening to this podcast, like I would just say, don't, I personally didn't appreciate the advice that I got before I started law school of like, don't worry, like you'll figure it out once you start law school. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there is so much you can learn before you start law school. And who gave you that advice? Um, it might've actually been someone who was at Harvard at the time. And it's just so unfortunate that people, I don't know why they give that advice. I don't, I don't, it's not, it's not that they're telling you not to learn anything about law school, but it's like, oh, don't worry about like 
the first year stuff like you'll learn it when you're in class but so much of it is like common amongst the different law schools that I don't know that I would necessarily I don't want people to like stress out over it too much in terms of the actual content but you can get somewhat of an introduction before you start law school and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. What would you have done Doreen if you hadn't gone to law school if you if if lawyering is no longer on the table what would you do? <laughs> Um, in terms of grad school or, or like, what would I do career wise? It doesn't have to be grad school. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the things that I'm doing on the side right now have always been passions of mine. Like I've always enjoyed like being able to help others in whatever capacity. So doing it in the sense of helping people figure out their career or trying to help them figure out their career to the best that I can, even just being like a facilitator of like, bringing other people and sharing their insights that I think that's probably um, what I would do. I just, I'm, I, I guess, yeah, I just, I just really, I feel like people have, I feel like everybody has a strength and something unique about them that they can add to the world. <laughs> and a lot of people are not necessarily um, using it or, or using it to, to the extent, to the fullest. And so yeah, I think I think what I'm doing now in terms of like the before you take the LSAT stuff, that's something that maybe I would do even more like to a larger extent if I wasn't in law school and if I wasn't pursuing law. Uh, on that note, you've you've interviewed several um, general counsels uh, from big companies that we all know. What interview would you recommend to people? Which one was the most interesting? The one with the um, former general counsel of Apple was just like, not only was he super knowledgeable, but he knew who his audience was and he was catering to the audience. Like he knew that people were hungry for certain knowledge, like they're early on in their career and they have these questions like starting out, how do I think about this? Like what type of background should I be thinking about if I want to go into GC, into being a GC down the line? Um, I just think that that one is full of insights. Not that the other ones aren't, but I think that one especially is full of insights. The The Nike one is maybe, um, she didn't necessarily just gear it towards women, but I think as a woman, maybe some people would relate to certain things that she says even more, like in terms of like imposter syndrome and things like that. Um, but but I would overall say the the Apple one for sure. Okay, and people can find that by searching for what? Before you take the LSAT on YouTube, okay, and they'll and and maybe Apple throw in there to get that that particular interview. Yeah, I am also on. I mean, I think you already mentioned it, but I am also on like Instagram and and podcasts and stuff like that. Um, so I don't think that specific episode is actually not on podcast, but I think you know I'll, I'll probably actually post it soon because why not? <laughs> yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for your time, and um, yeah, I it's been good hearing about the law school experience, and I'm sure people can take a lot of these ideas to heart. Hopefully, they'll they'll get ready if they decide to go. Thanks again. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Doreen. Again, um, if you guys want to find Doreen, you just go to before you take the LSAT uh, on all those different channels. Thanks again. Okay, thank you guys. Okay, um, anything else we need to talk about, Ben, before we wrap the show up? That's it. You can join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. 
We are at ThinkingLSAT on Instagram and Twitter. Go to strategyprep.com and foxlsat.com to learn about all of our individual services, although those are merging uh, these days, aren't they, Ben, into LSAT Demon Live? They are. Uh, Yeah, that's where we're going. I'm having lots of fun teaching LSAT these days, and uh, you can join those classes. We have live instruction seven days a week at lsatdemon.com. Not just with me, but with uh, Ben and with uh, all of our awesome TAs. So check it out. You can do a free trial at lsatdemon.com. You can listen to the show a million different ways. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher. Um, Please subscribe and rate and review us. Those things really do matter. Um, Thanks to Doreen Benjamin for coming on the show. That was episode 241 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>